Welcome to Green and Red, Scrappy Politics for Scrappy People, a regular podcast on radical environmental and anti-capitalist politics, brought to you by Bob Bazanko and Scott Parkin. Welcome to the silky smooth sounds of the Green and Red podcast. This is your co-host Scott Parkin in Berkeley, California. And as always, I am joined by uh, Bob Bazanko in Texas right now. Yep. And today... We're going to be talking about a recent incident. Last Sunday, February 25th, Aaron Bushnell, who was active duty member of the Air Force, killed himself in front of the Israeli embassy in Washington, D.C. by setting himself on fire. He self-immolated. And he did this as an act of resistance to the ongoing genocide in Gaza by the Israelis. He was just 25 years old. Uh, he live-streamed himself saying, I will no longer be complicit in this genocide about to engage in an extreme act of protest, but compared to what people have been experiencing in Palestine at the hands of their colonizers, it's not extreme at all. This is what our ruling class has decided will be normal. He also identified as an anarchist uh, when he lit himself on fire as the flames consumed him. He shouted, free Palestine. So talking with us today is our uh, good friend and comrade, Graham Kluppner, uh, who is a, uh, Graham is many things. But he's a anti-war U.S. military vet of the war in Afghanistan. He's also an environmentalist and direct action organizer. Graham, welcome to the Green and Red podcast. I uh, wish we were talking about lighter things today, but glad that you're able to join us today. Um, there's a lot of directions we can go with this, but just to kick it off, you're a military vet. You served in Afghanistan. You're later involved in anti-war veteran efforts. Could you maybe talk about some of your initial reactions when you heard about uh, Aaron's self-immolation? Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. I, I think that my initial reaction, I, I feel like I haven't had my pulse on what the American people over the last seven months since October 7th have, how they've been reacting. Like my assumption based on 20 years of war in Iraq and Afghanistan was an assumption that, that the American people just tune this stuff out. And uh, in a lot of ways, I've been like really heartened to see mass mobilizations around the country, also around the world, um, in solidarity on what like was one of the most seemingly one of the most complicated political issues. But as Chomsky says, is also probably one of the most straightforward and easy to solve if one wanted to. And like when it happened on Sunday, I my immediate reaction was just like a numb sadness here's another one lost and i think it's important to delineate as aaron said like the difference between the suffering that's ongoing in palestine and like what it means for a active duty service member who has health benefits and all access to mental health and, and money coming in every month there's a fundamental difference between those experiences but for our purposes it's a pretty incredible and unique thing for a 25 year old young man with all kinds of future potential to voluntarily take his own life and then what happened is on Monday and Tuesday, all kinds of folks in my Rolodex and my community that I haven't talked to a lot of them, a lot of them are not like super activist people, started reaching out to me and that this had hit them, that they had, they couldn't look away. And it made me interrogate a little bit more and, and take a deeper look at, at the videos and to read some of the think pieces out there. This is not the first time that somebody has self-immolated around Palestine. This is not the first time somebody has self-immolated in the movement in the last 20 years. And of course, well, there's the last couple, even the last couple of years. And I forgot to mention that in the intro that someone had actually done this back in the fall. 
Yeah. So there was uh, a person we don't even we don't know much about them because it just the media doesn't cover these things. And I think one of the amazing things, if you can call it that, about this incident is that it was locked tight as it from an action design to be cynical about it. But from an action design uh, approach, like it was live streamed. So he controlled his own narrative, his approach and calmness and clear communication about what he was doing, why he was doing it, what the demands were, what had brought him to this place the action design was incredible and that's the reason that we're talking about this that's the reason that cnn put this on the news in america there's polls every single year about who are the most respected members of society active duty service members always are at the top of that above teachers above above all these other uh, healthcare workers and so he supreme court justices right yeah exactly it's not anymore for them and aaron knew that and he took advantage of that. And because of that, I think deserves a significant amount of humanity, empathy, and respect. The flip side of that is like, how fucked up of a world are we in where somebody feels the necessity to do something like that? And I remember being that age and I remember trying to put together my worldview or, or put it back together after serving in the military and having my worldview shattered. I thought America was a force for good in the world. I thought America was the country that stopped things like the genocide in Palestine from happening. And my experience in the military showed me otherwise. And so when I was 25, I was still both mentally putting my own pieces back together, but also ideologically trying to understand how the world could have come to be this place. And I think what's interesting following this is like, of course, the media and of course, the right wing and of course, pro-Biden folks have tried to go after Aaron Bushnell, right? They've tried to poke holes. Oh, he's, he must have had mental health issues and et cetera, et cetera. And it hasn't really landed. And that's an interesting question for us of like, why hasn't that landed? I think some of it is like the country has just moved. The youth are like 100% shifted again away from a lot of the propaganda around Israel. And but I also think this is an incredible example of conviction. It's clear that he had conviction and that really lands with a lot of people. Years ago I was doing a lot of work with uh Vietnam vets like VVAW guys. I was just talking to probably hundreds of them. And it it's really striking how many brought up the name of Norman Morrison who uh, immolated himself in 1965 in front of McNamara's office. And I just wondered if you think that what Aaron Bushnell has just done will resonate too among groups like About Face or anti-war veterans and people like that. I mean, uh, there was a, a, I couldn't tell from the, the little news clip I saw, but there was some kind of a rally yesterday in support of him. And an active duty Air Force woman spoke and there were a few other people there, but she was really adamant about where are our superiors? They've let this guy down. I just wondered if you think that this is going to have some kind of bigger meaning. I I think so. Famously, Norman, there's stories that he that McNamara witnessed it, right? And that I think that's true. Um, yeah, he saw it from his window. It actually strangely makes me think of the stories about Reagan and watching the day after and yeah. having he he famously sees this made for Sunday TV show about nuclear war and it somehow changes his calculus. Whether or not that's true, I think that the stories we tell about how history changes are up for grabs, and we will have to find ways to tell those stories. So I don't know how it'll turn out. But I do think that the location that he chose, had he done this at the White House, that's a totally different story arc. And I think there's a 
term that people in the military, especially in the Marines use, which is ours is not to reason why ours is but to do and die. And I think there's a lot of people, especially in an all volunteer military, as we have now, uh, which is totally different from the Vietnam scenario. People join for many different reasons. They join for academic uh, access and monetary financial support. They join for healthcare. They join because they have a family young and they want housing and support. They join to travel the world and have adventure. And there are a subset of people that join because they want to blow shit up or they want to be a man, especially for young white men. That's a, I saw that quite a bit in the units that I was in. And we don't have a lot of choice. You don't have any choice really in your duty station. You can maybe pick a little bit of your job, but that's based on your training. And it's based on what needs of the military, needs of the army, the air force. And so I know there's a lot of active duty personnel that don't support the Israeli occupation or genocide. There's a lot of people that, you know, I met people that joined up and we were getting ready to deploy overseas. And they're like, my recruiter told me that I wouldn't have to go to Iraq or Afghanistan. And everybody just laughs at you. You're an idiot. <laughs> Recruiters lie just like cops. So I think there's like a significant amount of people in the military that don't believe in everything that they're being asked to do. Now, the amazing thing with Aaron is that he stood up and said, literally, I'm not going to do this and I'm not going to support this. And not only that, I'm taking responsibility for my views in solidarity and I'm going to take this action that is an extreme political act of civil disobedience. Yeah. And I think that, yeah, I'll end there. It's interesting talking about the narrative, the counter narrative that the media was trying that there, he had like mental health issues. Was he mentally ill? There, there have been media stories saying he's an anarchist. He has anarchist ties, which I actually feel like is something along similar kind of counter narrative. And uh, I saw as when I was reading something about it this week, I saw a, a, a statistic that on average, 22 military vets kill themselves a day as a result of things that they saw while in the military, likely Iraq, Afghanistan, probably going back as far as Vietnam. And I'm, I'm curious on that, like on this mental health question, what you think about the media is actually trying to play up a, a military person with mental health issues, but don't talk about this bigger, larger, more dire issue. And I'm just, and I, I also know that you had done some, you've done some work with around suicide hotlines and things like that. Yeah. So we used in the anti-war movement, we used to say war is trauma. And so no matter what you're connected to it, and that includes people who don't deploy because you're still preparing psychologically for war, the mentality of the military, the training that you go through, like often like liberals will refer to it as brainwashing, but I would say it's much more indoctrination. It's much more, there are some parallels with like religiosity or cult-like behavior where you put everybody in the same room and they're expected to believe the same thing. And over some period of time, you, you to survive, you have to do that. And these mental health challenges have existed throughout like human history of war. We have grown in our analysis of it and our recognition of it. And especially the Vietnam generation suffering publicly did a lot to move the needle. But if you go back to the Spanish American war, for example, like there were no medical benefits for, for returning veterans at all. There were some after the mm -hmm. civil war, but that's where that concept of like red tape comes from. It comes from the civil war and the bounding of veterans files in red tape that they couldn't access in Washington, DC. People would have to go there literally and find their file and like go prove it in a court. So we've come a long way in terms of inside of the military recognition of new concepts like traumatic brain injuries and obviously post-traumatic stress, what we call it now. But 
I think there's a, a wider or larger question about like mental health under capitalism that you don't have to serve in the military to have mental health challenges and struggles. And we as a society need to find a way to reckon with that. And I, I think that this there's still a stigma around if you have mental health challenges that somehow your perspective is wrong or can't be correct. That's just insane. Suicide is something that plagues every community in America, especially young people. And there needs to be a deeper conversation about like, what is purpose and hope look like for young people? Because I'm around a lot of teenagers now and the work that I do, and I can tell you that there's a lack of hope, a lack of what the future holds that could be good or feels like moving forward. I think a lot of parents are struggling with that saying, wow, this generation is going to be worse off than ours was and worse off than our parents was. And that's deeply traumatizing and depressing. And, um, but I think as far as it relates to like the military and veterans communities after Vietnam, the military did a study of, they, they tried to figure out why did we lose the war? And they came to a number of conclusions. Some of that was like the press access. Some of that was like, because there was a draft that meant like every community in America was affected. And the assumption was that people actually didn't want, they didn't want to serve and they were forced to serve and thus like uh, were more likely to, to resist it. What the stats actually show though, is that people who enlisted were more likely to resist the war as GI res in, in GI resistance than draftees were, which is its own like rabbit hole. But there was one of the major conclusions the military came to was that there needed to be a greater separation in society between those who serve and those who don't. And that pumping up, like having a all volunteer military where you support the spouses, you support the kids, provide them education, healthcare, housing to increase the likelihood that those individuals who volunteer will stay 20 years or 10 years or like a significant amount of time, which saves the military on training money. I mean, it costs $400,000 to train me for example, and it's much more now, that what we need to do is create this separation where every need that you possibly could have as an active duty service member is on base. You got your movie theater, your gym, your community centers, like all that stuff. And there's this development that really came out of the atomic bomb, but has only gotten more and more of like operational security. Everything needs to be secret. Everything about your training and what your movements, when you're going to go from one base to another, even things that like you and I would say is that doesn't need to be secret. We're told that needs to be secret. And this develops this relationship with your parents or with your brothers and sisters or, or old friends from the old world where you're just not communicating about it. And that produces when you come home or when you leave the military, there's such a wide disconnect between civilians understanding like what the experience was like. And then movies like Rambo have produced this like fear of veterans that if you ask the wrong question, they'll explode or if a tire pops or... And there is some truth to those things, but the conclusion should not be like, we don't talk to vets or we don't ask them about their experience. And I think that separation is like key to, to being able to throw out something like mental health in this scenario and just dismiss, right? I don't know what his brain was like. I don't care. He, it's about what his message is and it's about his act. And that should inspire us to think about our positions on this war and on wars in general. It should not be something where we try to just pick apart everybody and dismiss them. Again, going back in the Vietnam era, a lot of soldiers finally said, this isn't worth it. We've been lied to. And they had access at the time. Obviously, there was no social media, but they were reading New York Review books and newspaper articles and things like that. They were actually getting hard copies, letters, things like that. And that's, I think, persisted. You've been in, in combat areas. How did the your 
military leaders convince you that fighting against Iraqis or Afghans or Gazans or whatever was worth it. What was there was something worth fighting for that they were somehow a threat. And and I know that a lot of people probably feel about it the same way and Bush and L did, but they're not going as far as he did. I guess just based on your experience, and that was some time ago, like how do they convince you that this is worth fighting for? And, and how do you think soldiers will resist that? It's a good question. I, there's a significant amount of the evolution of the training that has happened over the years to from moving away from circular targets in training, like circles with, with concentric circles to like silhouettes of human beings, right? So like that change in and of itself is like trying to prepare people for taking another human life. It's really hard to actually get human beings to kill somebody else. It's like not an easy thing. We're not born to do that. There's something deep inside us. The military knows that. And so there's like dehumanization efforts, like using different language, racially charged language to refer to the other, to refer to Afghans as this or Iraqis as that, to try to not see them as human beings. But still you do, and you still see them as humans. And there's also cultural barriers when you don't have language ability to communicate directly. You have to have a third party, an interpreter, be able to speak for you. And it depends on the nature of your job, too. If you're doing like traffic control, you might have much more daily interactions with like families or normal human beings in an occupied territory trying to live their lives. But if you're doing night raids, uh, 3 a.m., kicking in somebody's door and just yelling at them and pushing them into a corner, like you're not going to have, you're not going to see people as much as human beings. I think there's, like, how does somebody come out of that? I think a lot of it has to do with what type of person you are when you come into the military and like how much of a critical thinker you are and how much you feel permission to question authority or to think for yourself. And that's one of the reasons the military takes 18-year-olds. It's it's not just because they're physically fit, but it's also because their brains aren't fully formed and they haven't had a chance to like travel and live their lives and, and go to college or ask questions or whatever. But I think there are conversations that happen in every single military unit on some level about there's a there's a nat, just like in America that I think there's a natural libertarian strain in the right, the left, all over the place, this questioning of authority that just is naturally there because of American history. That's also true in the military. And so in the military, it manifests very similarly to how like labor struggle in a job scenario. Like you have a boss and you have to follow the boss to get your paycheck, but the boss might make a dumb decision and, and all the workers understand that. All the soldiers understand that. You might carry out the mission or the task, but like at a certain point, when you start running up into problems, you might start talking to the other guys and girls about it. And you might start like lowballing it or slow rolling it, or maybe not totally following through on the task. And there's, depending on the unit, like there's a differentiation between how much you can get away with. And they'll try to identify like a bad apple or like someone who's doing the union organizing or whatever. They'll try to like excise or remove them. But there's also a, a significant, the civilian population doesn't generally see it, but even in Iraq and Afghanistan, there was like search and avoid missions where people would go out and not actually go to the target. They just drive around and avoid like getting into a firefighter. Just they didn't want to meet the enemy or cause problems, just trying to avoid. And uh, you don't see that a lot. That doesn't get written about, doesn't get talked about, but like everybody in the military knows that those things are happening. And there's a point where you're an officer or a boss in this context where you know that if you tell your guys to do something, they may not do it. And so you don't tell them to do it. So there's now 
once you leave the military, one of the hardest things about organizing anti-war resistance is that you are completely disconnected. You were every day in the military, you were around the people in your unit, eating shit and sleeping next to them. Not all the same things, but like you're doing things together on a daily basis and then you leave and you're on your own. And so that's a real big struggle. That's where a lot of the, the trauma really surfaces. And to the extent that you're able to get help and connect with community and new community, whether those are other veterans or those are like people who are providing you purpose, like that's going to be to me the difference between success and failure uh, in your life at that stage. And then can you like use your voice, use your experience to speak about it? And a, a bigger question for me has always been like, is the left willing to hear what you have to say? Because we built a culture that is in the left, such as it is, that is scared of people who come into a room with what has been termed as like bro-like behavior or like hyper-masculinity. And vets are humans just like everybody else. They're trying to figure out who they are and grow and learn and become new people. And the left has struggled quite a bit in our generation with welcoming. And I can think of many friends of mine who are vets that I tried to encourage to participate in, in the movement. And they did for a year or came to actions, came to events. And eventually we're just like, man, I can't, this is, I'm not welcome here. I don't belong here. People don't, I don't understand this culture. I'm being, the way I dress is being critiqued. The way I act is being critiqued and nobody's actually taking me under their wing. And I think that's like a real indictment of our movement that we need to do better at. There's no revolution in human history that didn't involve active duty service members or veterans taking their finger off the trigger. And in order to take their finger off the trigger, they have to see the movement as human beings. They, and the movement needs to see them as human beings. So that's to me, like the real question here. And one of the things that I've been hoping to see out of since October 7th. Yeah, that's unfortunate. I've been, you know, involved in various things for a lot of decades now. And I'm used to, we would put that's for peace first in the March and we would have them speak when that actually was made you even more credible. Yeah. So it's unfortunate. Now, what years were you actually on duty? 2003 to 2007. Okay. So social media was already developed then. How does that change? More, not as much as today, but my point is it's impossible. If you want to find out what's going on in Gaza, you're going to find out, you're going to see horrific images. And, and I'm assuming Aaron Bushnell and, and not just Aaron Bushnell, but probably most soldiers right now and, and airmen and, and, and Marines are aware of what's actually happening. I doubt they're not seeing these horrible images and these stories of children being bombed and, and all this stuff. And do you perceive, and again, I know you're not intimately connected and talking to folks every day, but just based on what you've seen, like I would think that there's probably a lot of potential Aaron Bushnells out there, maybe not to the point where they'll immolate, but where they're about to say, I'm not going to do this, where they, I say snap in a good way. And I just wonder, based on what you've seen, if you think that these kinds of ideas, this resistance and this disgust at what you're being asked to do, is really more widespread than we might think. Yeah, I think it is. I think that one of the things that'd be interesting to look at to, to measure this in, in a year or two is to look at reenlistment rates. Like yeah. whether you know sure. people are like that isn't that's an easier route to getting out. Sure. You know, I think a lot of people don't understand that if you can't really quit the military, like you can quit, but you may go to jail and you'll definitely be a felon for the rest of your life. And so asking people to do that is a hard ask. And especially when we don't have a community that's willing to say, that's fine. We're going to take care of you. We're going to put you in this contractor business. We're going to give you a job. We're going to find you housing. We don't have a community that is able to do that, scale that. 
um, I'm using a lot of these like labor analogies because like we don't have a strike fund for service members who are willing to quit. And if we did, maybe people would take advantage of it. It's at least worth trying. Uh, I think that as far as social media, like it, there was MySpace, but like we you know, active duty service members, when I was in at the end of my, my tour, like we weren't allowed to have those things. Like we were, it was a little bit easier to, to say, absolutely not. I don't know what that's like today. It's, it must be, it must be insane, but I think we were in a different position in the early aughts because we were seeing the war with our own eyes and there was limitations on us even having like cameras for ourselves. Some units got like early GoPros, but that was for internal stuff. And like I said about operational security, leaking that or letting anybody else, civilians see that. There was this concept that the American people can't handle it. You can't handle the truth. And so we are professionals. We are people that can hold this trauma for the rest of society. He's never literally said that way, but that's essentially what the practice was. And now that's the baby's out or the Medusa's out of the, out of the, box or whatever the hell it is like it now you can't control it and pandora thank you pandora yeah mixing my myths so i think it's i wouldn't want to be like a community affairs person in the military trying to keep a containment on this stuff i do think they're like comparing it with the vietnam generation like people were reading books and they were reading pamphlets and they were sitting in rooms with human beings they could touch and smell and talk to to have their ideas challenged and that is not as present today which i think is an understatement and so, yeah, you can see a clip of an you know, Ukrainian getting his legs blown off or a Gazan family's house blown up. And that's something. And that does produce an effect. But I also think there's we're so fucking desensitized at this point that you're like looking at that on your scroll. And the next thing is like the sports score of the Chicago Bulls. And then the next thing is like an advertisement yeah. for Viagra. So I don't know what that means and what that does to. We're, we're also in a society where you can blow up a room of second graders or fifth graders and within 48 hours it's yeah so there's a level of expectation of, yeah. of like chaos and and coming to terms with it in a way that i think that's very scary which is just expecting it like exp- like what's the crazy shit that's going to happen today that i'm going to have to just continue going on with my life and pretend isn't real but i think this speaks to like why conspiracy theories have been on the rise like people are looking for a story arc that explains all this stuff and it's one of the things that has boggled my mind about Israel for so long is that it really doesn't, if you're a, if you're a real politique, old conservative brained American, the relationship that the United States has with Israel doesn't make a lot of sense. Like strategically, it, it is counterproductive. If your goal as America is to like police the world and have stability and have international trade, you want the vast majority of the Middle East to not fucking hate you. And by supporting Israel, you're just producing. Look at what bin Laden said coming out after 9-11. He made it very clear. The number one thing was that the United States support for Israel. The second thing after that was like having troops in Saudi Arabia. But it just, it doesn't make a lot of strategic sense. I think a lot of soldiers see that internally in the military are like, why the fuck are we like risking our, potentially risking our lives and definitely in like stochastic terrorist response, whatever. But also, like, why are we risking our social capital, you could call it, in the world by defending what is clearly genocide, is clearly war crimes? And I think another thing that's out of this that is like, maybe the left doesn't consider rolls their eyes at at this stage, but like the death of international norms and international law. Yes, it's always been a joke. Yes, 
the U.S. created this and it was for the U.S.'s benefit. And there are wars that haven't happened because of international law. There are people that have been held accountable because of, of social norms that have been created since post-World War II. And that is dying. That, that, that world is probably, the international law world is probably dead because of it's a hypocritical for the U.S. or Israel to call for certain votes in the U.N. now because it's like, well, you don't follow... You don't even you don't even try to pretend and put a visage or visage over it. You're just doing what you're going to do, and I think that's a really dangerous precedent for the world as well. This is maybe asking you to speculate too much, but I thought I'd throw it out there. Is you talking about the sort of disgust and dissent that maybe becoming more widespread within the U.S. military? Do you you think that would apply to the IDF, to Israeli soldiers? Do you, or I also know, I, I just saw a poll recently that 80% of the Israeli population supports what Netanyahu's doing. But I mean, is there any, do you, maybe this is a question for both of you too, but the, do you think there's any dissent going on within the Israeli military around this? Go ahead, Bob. There's always going to be some. I've never talked to anybody who served in any conflict who didn't say that there were, you know, skeptics or even critics or people resisting. But this, I would assume, given the level of the propaganda here in the U.S., in Israel, it's way more tense than that, turning this into a fight for survival, an existential crisis and all that kind of stuff. So it's hard. I wouldn't count on, although, you, know, you never know, but I, I wouldn't count on IDF. That's becoming the, the vanguard of a, of a movement in Israel. I think it's way more likely that's going to have to happen internationally because what we're seeing in Israel right now is pretty, pretty frightening. It, it's a just this kind of overwhelming takeover of everybody's minds and hearts. So I don't know, but you would. Yeah, I think and throw religion into it. That, that yeah. doesn't always, yeah. doesn't yeah. always add great stuff. Um, yeah, you know, yeah they've turned this into this the existence of Jewish people all over the world now. Yeah, it's ironic because they're attacking people for being anti-Semitic, but everything Israel has done has turned this into a crusade for Jewish people. Yeah. That's uh, Amalak and the Star of David and the, the religious imagery. So it's real. Yeah. yeah. And if you look at some of the telegram conversations between the far, like they've made strategic choices to stand back and let this, pro like not to be as public facing anti-Zion or anti-Jewish um, activity because they're seeing the growth of hatred towards the state of Israel. And they see the potential ways that they can like collaborate on that in the future. And so that's, that's deeply concerning. I think we have to clearly separate Zionism and sure. being Jewish, of course, and not not checking the boxes, just saying, I think that the far right's behavior is a warning for us. But you're right, this activity is fueling it in a way that nothing that nothing else could. I will say anecdotally, because I don't, I'm not in Israel. I've never been to Israel. I can't tell you what it's like on the ground. But back in 2012, I was part of a project called the Frontlines International Organization. And the idea of it was that we wanted to bring occupiers and occupied together. So we brought Afghans and American soldiers of Afghanistan together to have conversations in public, to have difficult, very emotional conversations about like why I joined and what it was like to be on one side of the door kicking it in, what it was like to be on the other side of the door being kicked in. And it was an extremely powerful experience that we had and tours and conversations and one of the things we did one evening was we had a number of uh, former IDF soldiers come and speak. And there was no one from Palestine that was there, but um, they were doing these tours at the time of, of Gaza. They were basically like veterans, uh, IDF veterans were taking 
Israeli civilians into Gaza to look at the destruction of the occupation. But all of them, to a T, were still, the state of Israel is great, it has a right to exist, it, it belongs here, and maybe some more of this land should be taken. It should be done less meanly, it should be done less egregiously. But even getting people to talk about a one-state solution was hard. And I just remember that striking that striking experience of being like, that felt very ahistorical. It felt very, history started in, in 1967. And, and nothing happened before that. And so that, that was always very hard for me. And I think that's just, we have some level of that in America. There, there's nothing before 1776 or whatever, like we have, and with some of that, but I think it is really strong in Israel. And I think like an easy answer to all of this would be like, well, the solution needs to come from the people of Israel because they're, but we say that about America, the solution for ending imperial, global imperialism has to come from America and we haven't done it yet. So don't have a lot of hope there to offer you. With Iraq and Afghanistan, it was direct U.S. intervention, invasion, involvement, whatever you want to call it, in in those countries. We're in more of this era of proxy wars in Ukraine, and we're in this, we are the largest arms dealer to the Israelis and we give them lots of money. Um, what is your sense of things that the active military could do, veterans could do, in order to proxy wars and, and sell arms to other countries so they can wage war on their occupied populations is also part of the empire. So what are things that they could, active military vets could do, active military duty members and vets could do to participate in resistance to this? Yeah, I, I'm going to be that weird academic and say it's more complicated and it begins a lot earlier. But I would say that all of the people who are in the military come from the United States population. They have mothers and fathers and family members and community, and they have culture that they're bringing in once they join the military, and then they get they go through their training and their process. So the culture we are creating as a society is one that leads to high levels of people joining the military or low levels of people joining the military, right? And so there is work that all of us are doing to create the social conditions that make it viable for the federal government to engage in direct wars or to support proxy wars. And if we think back to the 08 election, why Obama beat Hillary in the primaries was because of his position on dumb wars, specifically Iraq. Now, what he did once he was in office is not what I'm trying to talk about. I'm trying to talk about where the American people were at and what drew them into the 06 midterms. It was a landslide for Democrats and what then helped him beat the, the strongest Democratic candidate in forever. The same is also true for Trump in 2016. A lot of the left doesn't want to acknowledge this, but Trump was able to win a major argument against Hillary by being like, I'm not the warmonger. Iraq was fucking dumb. We should never have same, done. Same that. in the Republican primaries that year, too. Absolutely. And yeah, he, he killed the other, like the, the normal Republicans who wanted just the same foreign policy. So I think like we as a left underestimate where the American people are at. And that is also an underestimation of like where the potential recruits for the military are. So I think that the people who are in the military today are fundamentally different than say the people on September 12th, 2001 in the military were, or 2005 were. 9-11 is a joke at this stage for the most part. People are like, let's have a never forget 9-11. Everyone in the crowd is rolling their eyes. Come on, it's been 40 years. Let's get over it. It's like that. And so I think it's just a different draw that is, is being pulled in the military. 
as far as and that's a reason why I think the federal government has shifted to proxy wars. There's a different world and maybe it's 2014 where we do put ground troops into Ukraine, like uh, American ground troops. Like there like there's where we are in this moment of history is just fundamentally different. It's hard when it's proxy wars and it usually is harder to organize anti-war resistance because it's like not our boys and girls dying over there. So we're in this really interesting time. I think like the Republican opposition to funding for Ukraine, for example, is is obviously cynical. Like they want to just whatever they can do to oppose Biden. Sure. But there's also like a level there that's pretty incredible just from political history to see like this party being opposed to like fighting the Russians. It's a fascinating development, but I think it also just speaks to like the country's in a different place. Now, as far as direct action goes, and I, just to be put a finer point on it, we are exhausted from war. That Everything that we have as a society, our debt, our healthcare issues, our vision of America as the greatest thing in the world is all a casualty, uh, right or wrong, of the post 9-11 world. And we've never reconciled that. We've never had a, a truth commission. Obama said, let's move on. Let's just move on. Okay, I guess I'll admit that we tortured some folks, but really we need to just move on and not think about this. And that was detrimental to like our psyche. Everybody that's detrimental to the image of the media. Like one of the major reasons we don't trust, most people don't trust any mainstream media is not just because it's corporate and shitty. It is, but it's also that everyone was fucking lied to about Iraq and they remember that. They know that deep seatedly somewhere inside of them. And we never dealt with that. Um, but as far as direct action, I think you've seen mapping of the arms industry, like Lockheed Martin, North Grumman, like Boeing, um, and people are drawing those connections. People are, in some cases are even blocking those those facilities. There's been like block the boat actions all around the world of alleged arms shipments to Israel. On some level, like the consciousness raising process of like movement building has just gone into overdrive. I think every family in America has had a conversation on the dinner table or around this war since October 7th, which again, is just shocking to me, given how little post-2003 conversations there were about the war, like in, in Iraq and Afghanistan. I, um, I have those conversations with Republican family members who are opposed to what's going on in Gaza. It's It was pretty surprising. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> and who knows how much of that is, is maybe some baseline hatred of of Jews like there there may that may be a factor in there as well but but I think it's just like Bob said earlier like it is egregious it is in your face you can't really turn away from it and couple that with what you're seeing through social media which is just raw data dumps and then what you read in the New York Times or watch on generally like CNN or Fox or whatever and it's you can any human being can see like you're I call bullshit like, you're not telling the truth about this. You're edging and dancing around this. And so what we do with that political consciousness that's been raised, I don't know. I don't know. We've got to do something with it. There's got to be an alternative. It's not as simple. Yes, we should shut off armed shipments and monetary support to Israel. A, they don't need it. B, it's our money. What the fuck? C, it's unconscionable. But that's they can still fight the war with that. I think we've gotten into this scenario where we have to have a ceasefire and we have to cut off arms and that will fix the thing. That is a major step. But there is many, many steps. What does a truth and reconciliation post-South Africa process look like for Palestine? I don't know. I like It's hard to imagine something like that ever even happening in this stage. But something like that would have to happen. And if that happened, it would also require like 
America to do a truth and reconciliation <laughs> process with itself and with all its communities it's suppressed domestically and internationally. And that's the struggle. And that's, they call it struggle for a reason. It's a fucking hard thing and it's going to cause all of us to have hard conversations with ourselves and our loved ones and scary, it's scary. We've all talked about um, the left and the military. And I think we all kind of feel the same way about it. Cops, I think are unreachable, but yeah. people go into the military for all kinds of different reasons. And I've spoken to some of the most hardcore anti-imperialist, anti-war folks I've ever met have been vets. And so that's an issue. But in the summer, and, and I'm sometimes a little optimistic, a little hopeful. In the summer of 2020, I think military leadership, especially Milley, really stood up to Trump. And at the time, they were saying, hey, 40% of the U.S. military is not white, and Trump isn't going after. We can't ask them to go out and do that. There was a real sense that internally there will be a crisis within the military if they continue to get involved in these things and send people out into their own communities to shoot at people in the streets or something like that. And I just wonder if you think that's more kind of, I know, again, you were there a while ago, but I wonder how you think if that's more like kind of widespread, if there are people there who, and, and if there are military leaders who are saying, hey, we better be careful. I know you mentioned one thing, like Vietnam, I remember there are a lot of people who said, oh, we should have just invaded the North, crossed the 17th parallel. When I've looked at freaking every document around, you don't see that very often. And in fact, what you do see is we're afraid that these troops may not do it anymore. So there was a real sense that we're going to be careful what we ask of them because they're not really, no longer are they really trustworthy in a sense. And you had, I just wondered if there's still, you think that possibility is out there. Is there still, are there still coffee houses or there's still resources for vets to, to soldiers, active duty soldiers to go to? There's not many, if any, coffee houses left, but it was a model that we used for a while. It was never yeah. as successful as the Vietnam era, but I think that there is a great potential for for <laughs> widening the creating a wedge and widening the trust between civilian federal officials and their confidence that the military will carry out their orders, especially when it's related to the domestic population. And you can, I think of two particular moments. One is going back to the Madison, Wisconsin occupation that predated Occupy, predated the Arab Spring against Governor Walker. And Walker tried to call out the Wisconsin National Guard to put that down. And a number of veterans signed open letters demanding that the National Guard stand down and don't show up. And they didn't. They, and that was a really interesting moment of power. There was a lot of potential in that moment. You had like state legislators fleeing the state and refusing to provide quorum for some of the anti-democratic, anti-union measures. It was like there was a moment there where, to use a, a weird term, like the vibes in society were such that yeah. people were willing to take a leap of faith and say, well, the people are, are not, are, are moving in this other direction. Like we're going to follow them or we're going to stand down. And another moment that I don't think, I think needs to be explored more, but the Capitol riot on January 6th, there's a reason that Trump didn't call out the National Guard. And it's not just because he's incompetent. Um, there was an assumption there within the administration that the National Guard would not be on their side. And I think Milley was really critical in that whole period. We we did two or three shows on it. I mean, uh, I hate to like sound like a fanboy, but uh, I really respected what he did in that moment. Yeah. Yeah. I think that there is a, 
I often am very critical of the concept of tradition. Why do we do yeah. something? Tradition. But within the military, especially the officer corps, there is like tradition about the separation between civilian and military leadership. And it's seen as like a positive thing that the president is not a general. It's seen within the military as that. And that's like almost sacred. And I think that is something that does set us apart from other parts of the world. Historically, at least it has. And it provides a great potential for more 2020-like moments that hopefully are more clear in its goals and more well-organized and all that fun stuff. And I think there is a massive distinct difference between the police and the military. And I've yeah. said before with you all, but to put it as crassly as possible, you join the military for a short period of time, at least initially, you're saying four years, five years, whatever. And you're, you're telling yourself and being told that you're going to stop an existential external threat to your community. You join the police and you're doing 20 years, 30 years as a career, and you are domestically and in your municipality, in your community, you're targeting your own community. And there's a fundamental difference, even if in practice, in the, we could see ourselves as a global community and probably should. So even in practice, the military is doing the same thing. It is, the story is different. The feeling's different. You're literally leaving the country in most scenarios. Um, and I think there's some, we almost saw like a touchstone moment around like the border stuff in the last like two months where you've got the National Guard. It's like, are they going to go to the governor of Texas? Are they going to go to the feds? It's, it was another one of those like Little Rock moments. Yeah. And I think there will be many more moments like that. And to the extent that the movement is ready is seeing that those moments are likely and ready for them and ready and willing to like engage as human beings and not just see the military or military members as caricatures of whatever movie they've watched, but actually as human beings who made choices based on material conditions in their lives. I need money. I need education. I want adventure. I need purpose. Until we're able to offer alternatives to those things that the military does a really good job of offering, uh, people are going to continue to join the military. And people will continue to re-enlist in the military. Um, and if we put them in a position where they have to make a decision between hurting other American citizens and losing those benefits, that's a shitty position to put any human being in. So we have a lot of work to do. You mentioned, and this is something that just befuddles me, that if you look at polling, veterans and, and active duty members, soldiers are often like the most respected people in society. We thank every baseball game, the seventh inning, we thank you for your service and all that bullshit. Get the board planes first at the airport. Yeah, yeah, exactly. All that kind of symbolic stuff, too. But no one in public life has ever trashed the military like Donald Trump has. You get losers and this and that. And, and it doesn't seem, it seems like if before he did that, if he would said a candidate is going to talk shit about gold star mothers and call guys at D-Day losers, and that he would be, he wouldn't, he'd be lucky to get 10 votes, right? But these people who, wear the cloak of patriotism more than anybody else. Also, don't hesitate to, they're attacking Aaron Bush now, right now, in the most ugly ways imaginable, right? And that's odd. And I'm not sure really, it's bizarre. I'm not sure really what to make of it. Yeah, I think that, let's say you go to a restaurant, you order some food, it's really shitty food. And if you're an asshole, you might take it out on the, the waiter, yeah. right? But the waiter didn't make the food for you. Right. And the waiter didn't procure the food. And, not, and and maybe even the cook didn't even know what the agenda was, right? But the person who's in front of you is the person that you're seeing. And I think there's an analogy here with, with the military. I think most people 
in their minds, like I was talking about the 9-11 rolling your eyes thing. I think most people are like, all right, we get it. We thanked you a lot for your service, all right? It's been 20 fucking years, get over it. I think that's in most people's mind. And for example, like Regal Cinemas used to offer like a 20% discount at, right after 9-11. They don't offer a fucking discount anymore. Oh, most really? discounts are gone. Yeah. I, I ask everywhere I go and most discounts are gone. They're, they might have might let you board the plane early and sit on a fucking tarmac for an extra 30 minutes. But like, how about you buy me a beer at a baseball game? There's no... So like the society, I think, has tried to move on, but they still do the... They're, they're trying to be respectful or whatever, and they don't know what to do. So they, they still might, thanks, thanks for your service or appreciate it or whatever. But what I'm trying to get at is that Trump is, in this case, like many others, saying something that I think a lot of people feel, which is, you're not that fucking special. And I know these wars didn't actually save my bacon. We lost them both. Iraq, Afghanistan, we lost them. My gas prices are still high. You promised me cheaper gas prices. What the fuck was the point? And so I think that it's a cosplay that the Republicans have always done, saying that they give a shit about the American troops or whatever. And it's always felt like disingenuous anyway to most of us as vets. Like, sure, there's some vets that are super, super proud of what they did. And brass tacks, did they suffer? Yes. Did they work hard? Probably. Did they have crazy experiences most people don't have? Sure. But if those things are disconnected from whether it was good or bad for them to do it, which is what usually happens, like, why are you getting, I can go out and work hard at a construction site. Are you going to thank me for my fucking service? I, it, so I think everybody's like thinking that and feeling that. But I, like, I, have a, I have a friend who's an attorney who always says they should be thanking lawyers more than anybody. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Not, you know, and, yeah, teachers, doctors, yeah. Lawyers, nurses, especially. Yeah, it's tough. And it's but it also it's dangerous for us as vets who are like trying to reduce stigma around mental health and like trying to like actually help people who have gone through these experiences. It's we don't want to touch the thanks for your service too much because like at least that's something <laughs> at least it's providing people this feeling that they do matter and they are worth it and they shouldn't you know quit on life unless they have a real purpose to do so so it's a hard one and i think it goes back to like we really need to have an interrogation of ourselves as a society uh, i've got one more question i don't know if bob has any other questions although i feel like we could talk to you for a while um yeah, yeah, there's just there's so much going on here. I don't think that Aaron Bushnell is going to be the only person we're talking about doing making some kind of act taking some kind of action like this come yeah. going forward because this is going to last a while. And I also think this is probably a, a huge mitigating factor in whether the US gets even more involved. I mean, there's no doubt they're doing things clandestinely, but I'd be stunned if American troops actually open openly entered that area. Yeah. Because I think you're gonna it's gonna be a real hard sell to tell young Americans that they should go risk their lives to kill little babies in Gaza. And, and one last thing. And again, you're not as involved with this, but I'm assuming there, there are probably people now who are, who are uh, involved in speaking to people and deem recruiting or whatever you call it. Do you, do you get a sense that there are still people out there doing that? Yeah. There's a, a still like active duty people, things like that. Yeah. I think there's like different within the counter recruitment world, there's different, feelings of thought it's do we try to prevent the recruitment in the first place do we stop it in high schools do we like yeah. target recruitment centers then there's like the active duty interaction which is really in in my opinion has like really failed we've not it's uncomfortable and this again to the left do we talk to people we disagree with or potentially disagree with 
no, try not. It's uncomfortable. It makes us feel unsafe. And so and we like our little bubble. And so we stay in our bubble. I'd rather mobilize uh, people who agree with us than try and convert. Back to the labor analogy, labor organizers go into a workspace and there's people who are going to disagree with them, may not even have union politics, but they at least try to convert them. Whereas well, unless like, the Jane McAlevey, like there's yeah. organizing and there's yeah. mobilizing. And yeah, most exactly. of what we do is fucking mobilizing and we call yeah. it organizing, but it's just people that are already there and we're just letting them know a thing's happening. You should show up. That is different, fundamentally easier yeah. work than organizing. Yeah, I get the sense that there are a lot of active duty soldiers and vets out there who don't even know that they're anti-imperialist and anti-war because no one has ever engaged the issue. But if you started talking to them about that, I, this is something that we've done and talked about forever. I've always been, because I've written about it as a scholar, I've always had soldiers and vets come and talk to me. And it's it, there's a lot of them out there and they speak with an authority that I certainly don't have. And they, like you, they have a lot of good stories that the media would never tell you about. Pallets of $100 bills going to some warlord or something like that. Yeah. I, I also, I think the danger, maybe back on the left thing, the danger of the left not actively work, trying to talk to people they disagree with or might disagree with is that someone with anti-imperialist politics in the military who's getting out or, or still active in the military, that's just going to make them gravitate to some isolationist far right political position. And and we've been seeing that. There are a number of vets in active duty military, which participated in January 6th. Yes, and yes. so I think that's a, a greater threat that, and it's definitely one that the left is missing the boat on. I would say if you are an active duty personnel and you come to the conclusion that America is literally supporting a genocide right now, or in the case of Iraq and Afghanistan, participating in acts of cultural and social and human genocide. If you come to that conclusion, and then you're like, what do I do about this? And you look out and you see the left as it is. And they're like, we should organize a rally to convince the leaders who chose to do this war that they made the wrong choice. Ah, oh, it didn't work. We should do another rally. And you look at that and you're like, this doesn't make, this is the, the scale of like response to the crisis is nowhere connected. And then you look over some boogaloo boys like, yeah, we should assassinate political officials. Yeah, you might gravitate because you're already trained in that mentality, because you believe that violence can solve problems, because that's what the military is teaching you. That's what yeah. our nation state is teaching you. So, yeah, like I would advocate like doing some deep thinking and strategy on the left to try to come up with. Have an honest conversation about like, is what we are doing working? I almost said a George W. Bush thing is our teacher <laughs> children, exactly. our children, learning. but are we being effective if yeah. not? What would it look like to build a mass, powerful movement that could provide alternatives to American society, create dual power structures, move towards more assembly models, like direct democracy, like actually living the freedom and libertarian values that we talk about in this country? Those are conversations that are really hard to have. Some people are having them, but like on a mass scale, we've, I think you guys did it, did an article on the If We Burn or a, a conversation on the If We Burn book. Is that right? the one about all the failed movements over the last 20 years internationally. And I think that book talks a lot about like, we're great at mobilizing people. We're great at like turning people out in, in rage and anger and, and grief, uh, but we don't know how to capitalize on those moments. And I, I read that book. I don't, we haven't done a specific yeah. episode on it. You should. Sorry. I've mentioned it in a, a couple of our scrappy Sundays, I think. I appreciate that it's like a critique that is not off. It's we all know it, but we don't want to say it out loud. It's the emperor's clothes thing. And 
So I think I think what happens to most active duty service members is that they do have deep questions about what they have been asked to do or what they're being asked to do. Yeah. They look out in the civilian world or they look elsewhere in the military and they don't see anybody really organizing mass alternatives to power. And they just go into themselves. They just try to have a family, quit, hide themselves away, maybe kill themselves. And they come to this like individualized solution that's not a solution. And so like when Bob, you're talking about the potential, the potentiality that exists out there. I think it's massive, but without a sustained movement that can capture those people, bring those people in, give them a community to, that replaces the kind of shitty, but still existing community of the military, like they're just going to be ossified on their own atomized. Yeah. And I, I would think the ruling class is far more concerned about military resistance than anybody else. VVAW, along with the, the Black Panthers, were considered the number one domestic terrorist group by the back in, in the 60s and 70s. And so I would think that if, if for the left, it's not only like the right thing to do, but it's just a pretty good tactic. And the left often doesn't consider things tactically, I think. They have these grand ideas and they have all these buzzwords and things. But I know we always really prized having somebody who had that kind of experience and we would always try to ask if they would participate or if they had some advice to give us or if they wanted to speak or whatever. It's a little harder, although Trump can call them D-Day guys losers and somehow get away with it, which is still just stunning uh, to me. But uh, it'd, be, it'd be really interesting in 20, 20 years to see the rewrite of what Trump was by the right wing, like how they will remember him. And then there'll be young people like discover, wait, but he said this thing. How does that... Uh, no, he didn't. That didn't happen. Yeah. During, during the 2020 primaries, Bernie Sanders got, I think, three times more military money, military contributions than anybody else. Yep. And and I think there are things out there that liberals don't understand when they just see somebody with a uniform and a rifle as the enemy or something like that. And again, I know from my entire life, I've some of the smartest people I've met are vets. Some of them were really ardent and passionate about their politics, really helpful. And yeah, that's something that I would certainly, as a tactical, a tactic for organizing people should really take heed of because yeah, a, right. a bunch of left-wing professors ain't going to do it. Yeah, they have, they, they have a role to play. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I think the, the, the Sanders thing is really interesting because Sanders is the, is the primary person, even more than John McCain, that got our generation the post-9-11 GI Bill. He was the one who championed that. And he is considered the left, most leftist yeah. senator. And he literally carried like healthcare benefits for the rest of our lives through Congress. He got us like double the amount of college money. He got us mental health counseling, like, and service members understand that a lot more than the regular population do. And they remember, and that's why they donate. That's why they turned out. And the military is not just like Trump supporters. Like it's an amalgamation. There are fucking socialists and anarchists and apolitical yeah. people and just waiting I, to be organized. I was telling Scott, I used to do research at the Marine, at the Navy Art at the Marine Corps History Center. <clears throat> and I was surprised you walk through there and they're like these little, you know, cubicles. And these, there's a soldiers there who have like pictures of Malcolm X up, quotes from Martin Luther King and all kinds of stuff that like, it's like, wow, in the Navy Yard, they have this stuff. You know? Yeah, it's a bigger and, and far more uh, differentiated group than, than you'd imagine. They're not a bunch of baby killers and all that kind of stuff, which is obviously that's been contrived too. There's a lot of research on that, that like the spitting on the soldiers were spat upon and we now know that probably didn't happen very often, if at all. 
So I think there's a quote that I've heard from the Kurdish freedom movement in Rojava that really like sticks out to me. It's like a challenge to the left. And that is until you learn to love your country, you cannot liberate it. And I think that what the left has done as a culture inadvertently for very good reasons has rejected everything about America, reject the flag, reject the history. It's all toxic. It's all horrible imperialism and racism. And like all of that is true. It's all there. And also there are slave revolts and there are like black and white solidarity in the 1600s. And they're like the American uh, revolutionary war has some fascinating things to teach us. And there's some beautiful writing and some horrible writing. And like, we need to find a way to hold the complexity of what it is to be an American, because there are, as you say, active duty members who see being American as being Malcolm X. And there are some who see being American as being George W. Bush. And that complexity is just real. That's, that's a real thing. We have to struggle with that. We have to engage with that. And we have to offer like, why Malcolm X's vision is better than George W. Bush's. And we need to go fucking win it. We need to go out there and organize on behalf of that or whoever's vision. But like, we have to fight for it. Just because we have some like cool punk rock songs and like internet fucking memes does not a revolution make. <laughs> no, no revolution by meme. The, the revolution will be minimized. God, I fucking hope not. What's uh, yeah. Billy Bragg? The revolution is just a bumper sticker away or something. Yeah, yeah. My my last we, we've touched on this a little bit, and so and I don't think we have to go into this too deeply. But before October seventh, we did a number of shows on Ukraine and lamented how there was no anti-war movement. We had Code Pink on, folks on a couple times, and then after October seventh, we're seeing a lot of like anti-war activity around you know this this ethnic cleansing campaign of genocide in Gaza and all that sort of stuff. And and and, and largely, it's the same tactics that don't necessarily work because we saw them big mass mobilizations and protests. We're seeing a lot of disrupting of politicians and corporate types at, at places to the point where I saw an article today where the Biden campaign has admitted that they don't go on college campuses now because they keep getting shouted down or they don't put out where they're going to be until right at the last moment. But what is your sense of the this sort of new revitalized anti-war movement since October 7th. And how do you think, and just to bring it back to what the topic of the episode is today, what do you think Aaron Bushnell's sacrifice will do to contribute to that? I think history will be a more accurate judge than any of us in this moment. But I'd like to believe that Aaron's actions put a, it's an escalation. And it's, it's like, uh, you know, it's like standing outside of a house and you're yelling at the people inside and then maybe you're like knocking on the door and then you're banging on the door and you're playing really loud music and Aaron's action is like kicking the fucking door in. And uh, what we do with that and the lessons we draw from that are up for grabs. I think like we started this conversation, I think we need to remember that there's a reason we're listening and hearing about Aaron Bushnell and not many other people. That doesn't diminish what he did. And it doesn't say anything about like how incredibly inspiring and sad and traumatizing and complex his actions are. But I think it puts like a, a major boot on that door. And uh, I don't know what we, I don't know. I don't know where we go with this. I, I definitely am as far as 
the Biden administration, I guess, rocking a hard place. <laughs> okay, so you got fascism, and then you've got old school libertarian or the global world order imperialism. Those are your options in this election. And like, you got I, the C- Civil War Two or World War Three. Like Jesus. The choices that we are offered are fantastic. I actually feel like that Chomsky narrative of like within this like narrow sphere you can debate. I think that's a, a bit wider now than it's been in my lifetime. I th- I think they in the Biden administration had a calcul at least they at the top and who've been around for 50, 60 years in politics. I think they had a calculation that like the American memory is short and this will be over in time for like us to move on to some other like shiny object. And that may well be true. It may well be that we get to October, November, and everybody's just like, can't have fascism. But I also, I organize a lot of, with a lot of people under 30. And not only are they disenfranchised and disenchanted with any like hope for a future or a job or owning a house or like whatever the American dream used to be, but they're also like, what the fuck does it matter what I do in the election or the vote? Like, I'm just not participating. And every election there are, this conversation comes up. Oh, you're going to let the other, the worst thing that always comes up. And I don't know, it feels different. It just, it feels like if I was in the Biden administration, I'd be like, you're going to fucking lose the election on this one issue. What are you doing? And I think there are a lot of people, we've seen a lot of people in the administration and in the so-called deep state, like writing internal letters and saying, what the fuck are you doing? I'm going to quit. People have quit over this. Probably not as many as they could have. I think it's two. Yeah. Yeah. They got jobs, Scott. They got retirement plans. I Career. think it was, was it Kaiser Wilhelm? Maybe I forget it. A German military official once said, if I've lost the loyalty of my soldiers, then there's no hope. And I think the left should understand that too. That's a, a real resource. Because at the end of the day, a bunch of 65-year-old generals aren't going to go out, shoot and fight young people. The, the master class declares the war. The, the subject class fights all the battles, I think. So it's just really, it's really striking. I keep thinking of a, the impact that Portuguitas had on the cop city protesters, people are still talking about him and still brought up. So I think Bushnell, probably even bigger than that, actually. It sounds cheesy, but we just can't let what he did just go in vain. No, I, I don't think it's cheesy at all. I think a movement, movements throughout history, like the movements that have been successful have have been those who coupled like not encouraging martyrs, but when we have them, we celebrate them. Yeah. We understand their sacrifice. And that that's a tough balance that requires us to to be diligent and disciplined but it is absolutely necessary we can't forget people's sacrifices especially when they're like voluntary like his was um yeah that's that's something we just don't see as much in american society as we once did the willingness to give oneself up for something greater and that is powerful that has moved civilizations that concept throughout human history and to the extent that we as a left can provide more things that are greater than ourselves, not just so people light themselves on fire. Like that's not what I'm encouraging, but like to, to give of your individuality into something greater that will make the world a better place. That's a beautiful concept. And to the extent that we can articulate and capture and really fucking live that is the difference between us having success or not. I'm good. That was my last question. Yeah. Uh, thanks, Graham. It's always great talking with you and anytime you want to come back on. And yeah, I appreciate your perspective and you know, kind of the way you look at this stuff. So it's rough, as you know, better than me. So We've been talking with Graham Klutner, our friend and comrade, anti-war veteran. <laughs> and you're listening to it on the Green and Red podcast, listening to Graham. And if you want to get a copy of Bob's first book, 
Masters of War, uh, you can make a donation to us for $35. And if you want to get one of our really awesome hipster trucker hats that say Green and Red Podcast on them, you can make a donation to us for $25 and just uh, email us at greenredpodcast at gmail and we'll get you going. Um, and then also, if you like what you're hearing, check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Listen to us on YouTube by hitting that subscribe button. Give us a rate and review on any of the audio podcasts. And then the donation link is at greenandredpodcast.org if you hit that support button. Or you become a patron, like maybe one of our comrades on this call on this episode right now. You will support the Green and Red Podcast. Just go to patreon.com backslash greenredpodcast. And Graham, it's always real. It's always good to have you on and talk to you. And everyone else out there, misbehave. And we'll talk to you again soon. Bye, Shabir.